Welcome to episode 98 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. 
New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 98 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? Well, today is a very exciting day, and by today, I mean the day that this episode actually airs, which is not the day we're recording it, but the day that it actually comes out, I am going to be on the second annual Delay Don't Deny cruise in the Caribbean. It's exciting. Has It's very exciting. Has it grown at all from last time? No, it actually didn't, and it's my fault because of when I scheduled it. The first cruise was in June. And that is really a better time for a lot of people to go on vacation, summertime. But, you know, I retired, so I was like, I can go on a cruise anytime, any week. I don't have to wait for summer. So when the person planning the cruise and I, the like travel agent and I were figuring out when to have it, she gave me a list of possible dates and times and itineraries. And I chose March because, hey, I can go on a cruise anytime. And also because it was cheaper. And I thought that people would like to have it be cheaper. Well, people are really busy in March. Their kids are in school. Spring break is coming up. So a lot of people just really couldn't do it. So the good news is, for anyone who's interested, we are having our third annual Delay Don't Deny Cruise in 2020, which will be in June of 2020. It's at the end of June. And we're leaving out of Charleston, South Carolina to go to Key West and Cuba which I saw an article about that being the number one cruise destination worldwide right now. No way. Yeah, and we are going. So if you're interested, for anybody who's listening, we have a group on Facebook. It's the Delay Don't Deny Cruise Group, and there are three questions you have to answer to join the group, but we would love to have you join us. We can already tell that the 2020 cruise is going to be a lot bigger. So you know, don't hold off if you're interested in going. The person who manages it is her name is Becky Gandy, and she can. There's information in the Facebook group about how to get a quote and that sort of thing. And she quotes a refundable rate. You have to book it through her, though, to get in the actual group. It's a carnival ship that we're going on, and they have certain rules for groups. And if you want to be considered a group, you have to book it through one person, and then you have like group events. They give us, you know, some spaces and we get perks based on how many people are in the group. Like we're getting a cocktail party, that sort of thing. And it all depends on how many people go. So please do not book outside of the group (laughs) because we, you know, you won't be officially a part of our group for dining reservations and group meetups and things like that. And I do want to point out that it's not like a big seminar at sea where we have sessions and speakers and all of that. No. It's a vacation, all of us together. We usually have one day, either a morning slash afternoon, where we all get together and have a Q&A and a few you know, guest speakers, but it's not like a celebrity intermittent fasting event. It's more of like a fun vacation with intermittent fasters. With intermittent fasting friends. Exactly. And we do not fast nonstop on the cruise. <laughs> we have really wide eating windows. And you know, one thing I want to bring up, You don't have to feel like you have to be at your goal body to go enjoy this cruise. We have people there on all, you know, stages along the way. So don't let that hold you back. Awesome. So can I go ahead and put links in the show notes to that group? 
Please do. Yeah, we'd love to have people join us and I'll be in the Caribbean as people are listening. Perfect, perfect. How are things with you? So I made a, I just realized we can make public playlists in the Himalaya app. I guess our two updates are all about this stuff. So we are a Himalaya partnered show and we're really getting amazing listener feedback (laughs) about the Himalaya app. So basically, it's an app that you can download and keep all of your podcasts in one place and make playlists. And it's just really, really, really wonderful. And so I just realized we can make, like I said, a playlist that I can share. So I made a playlist because you know how we always talk about episodes or I always talk about episodes that I'm listening to from other podcasts. So if you get the Himalaya app and search for a playlist, it's by my account. So it's under Melanie Avalon. But I think if you just search for the title, and I'll also put a link to this in the show notes, but I called it Intermittent Fasting Podcast Stuff We Like. (laughs) So every time I listen to a podcast related to everything that we talk about or talk about it on this podcast, I will put it in that playlist. So you can follow that playlist and have instant access to all the episodes. How wonderful is that? And you can even like comment on the playlist. So I think if people want to have like discussions, (laughs) they probably could. I haven't used the commenting feature yet, but yeah, I got really excited. I was like, this is perfect. They could even like recommend their own. Yeah. Something that might be. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I went through and I put like some of the recent ones we'd been talking about. Like I listened to, you know, that David Sinclair anti-aging episode. And I was listening to an episode about, actually, I didn't talk about this on the podcast, but yesterday I was listening to a, a really good Ben Greenfield episode about ketosis and the ketogenic diet and a lot of things like that. And so I put that on there. And then I started just remembering all these episodes I've listened to, just started throwing lots of stuff in there. So definitely for listeners, check that out. I love it. Another great reason to use the Himalaya app. And so we do have one more really fun thing for listeners. It's an Instagram giveaway. So we know our listeners love Instagram giveaways. (laughs) So this one this time around is for Australia Spare Mundi, which like I said, that is the company that makes the most wonderful fish brand I have ever found. It is absolutely delicious. It's a white fish but they raise their fish with sustainable practices that really, really support the environment. And the fish are tested to be free of toxins, free of environmental mercury. They're delicious. They're healthy. They have actually one of the highest omega-3 to omega-6 ratios of any white fish, which is really amazing. And you can also get them at a lot of grocery stores like Whole Foods. I love stocking up on that fish and I cannot recommend that company enough. And they are doing an Instagram giveaway for us. If you go to our Instagram, which is I have podcast, we will have a picture posted there for Australia Spare Mundi. So follow us, follow Australia's. Their handle is The Better Fish, and I'll have them tagged in that photo. And comment your favorite intermittent fasting benefit and tag a friend who might be interested in intermittent fasting or Australia Spare Mundi or any of the above. Comment as many times as you want. So you can enter as many times as you want. Just tag a new friend in each comment. And they are giving away five bags of their fish. So that's a $50 value. So yeah, pretty awesome. That is awesome. Yay. 
I hope some fish-loving listeners win some great fish. I know. I wish I could enter. (laughs) Too bad. You cannot. (laughs) Comment all my benefits. So for listeners, definitely check that out. And I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Awesome. All right. Are we ready to get into the first question today? Yes. Let's do that. All right. And this is from Carol. And the subject is changeability of gut microbiome. And Carol says, hi, Melanie and Jen. My question is, how can a person have a unique microbiome, one that can strongly influence whether the body tends to get overweight or one that helps keep weight more in a normal range and retain that if the gut microbiome can change within just a few days? How much can our own microbiome change if it's been found that certain types enhance weight gain and other types enhance normal weight? I'll try to give you a better idea of what I'm asking. In your discussion of the gut microbiome, you've said that the strains of gut bacteria are not the same in each person. Some have certain kind of bacteria, while others have different ones. Along with that, different strains of bacteria may play an important part as to whether a person is prone to overweight or not, as was found in some studies done in animals where a different kind of gut bacteria was implanted in animals, which changed their ability to lose or gain weight. And I do want to just a little aside here. That's also been shown in humans. That's not just animal studies. All right, back to Carol's question. It seems to suggest that each person has an individual microbiome that is unique to them. I'm wondering then what is meant when you say that a person's gut microbiome can change so quickly, even in a matter of a few days. If it's so changeable, how can there be those colonies that stick around long enough to have such a strong influence on weight gain, etc.? This is so long to explain that one question. Thank you so very much for all of the wonderful education you give and the wonderful support to all of us. Highest regards, Carol. All right, Carol. So thank you so much for your question. And I loved receiving this question because it's something I've been wondering for the longest time. Like this question has haunted me because it is true. You know, we always say that you can so radically change your gut microbiome really quickly, but then we see that certain populations and certain types of gut bacteria seem to have a long-term effect and don't seem to be very changeable. So I was always very, very confused by this. Did you feel that way, Jen? The idea that you can change your gut microbiome very, very quickly is true, but I often think that the really, really fast changes are like sometimes not the good ones. You know, like here's an example. I have a friend who years ago traveled to South America. Now, this friend of mine never had trouble with her weight. She was always lean and never had to work at it, never had trouble with her weight. She was just lean and normal. And she went to South America and got food poisoning while she was there. Well, food poisoning really impacted her gut to a degree that she had terrible diarrhea like for months and months and months. I mean, like as soon as she would eat, the food would just zip right through her. Like she couldn't keep any food in her system. And she started losing so much weight. Like no matter how much she ate, she would just eat and eat and eat and eat and have diarrhea and could not even maintain her weight no matter how much she ate. So her gut microbiome clearly changed very, very quickly, like immediately after that bad whatever it was that took root in there. And she had to work for months and months, if not a year or two, get her gut healthy again. So the idea that your gut microbiome can change right away is absolutely true, but I think it's actually harder to change it in a positive way than it is to change it in a negative way. It's harder to recolonize it with good bacteria 
I think, in many cases. She's now back to normal. She no longer has this problem. She was able to reverse the problem, but it was not something she was able to reverse in like, let's say, three days. So that's just a story of a quick negative change. And it took her a long time to get it back. Yeah, we do see that a lot where people have, like even for me, I had food poisoning and have almost never been the same since. And I was talking to a friend yesterday who had the same thing. She traveled out of the country and got some sort of gut bug or something and has really, really been on the struggle bus. And she was just saying, it's just like things are not going back to normal. So yeah, I didn't even think about that. But I I did actually find a study that completely addressed like all the questions I'd been having. It was like the perfect study. <laughs> I got so excited. It was called The Human Gut Microbiome and Health, Establishment and Resilience of Microbiota Over a Lifetime. And it was absolutely fascinating. I'll put links to it in the show notes. So it was very long, very dense, but I read every single word and took so many notes. And basically the takeaway that I got is that there's two main factors. And I came up with an analogy that I think really paints a good picture. And it's that the terrain of our gut is almost more important than the population. And it's what is determining the population rather than the population determining the population. So let me explain what I mean by that. Different species, so like different animals compared to humans, and then within different humans, we basically have a gut terrain that naturally supports a certain population of gut bacteria. And there are a lot of factors that can affect that. It can be genetics, it can be how we personally digest different foods, our dietary preferences, even our actual literal gut architecture. And then that determines the population. So it's kind of like the difference between like a desert population and a rainforest and how one is going to naturally attract certain types of people who live there or like the country versus a city. Like that naturally might attract like country people versus city people. And I I mean, that sounds really silly, but just the terrain naturally attracts a certain population. Well, I think if we think about that with plants and animals, we might can understand it better than with people, just because certain plants and animals live in the rainforest, certain plants and animals live in the desert. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the thing is, you can force a different type of population there. So for example, think about Las Vegas. You know, that's in the middle of the desert, you know, but it's like, when you go there, you wouldn't know that you're in the middle of the desert because, you know, they created this whole world. It's superficially maintained, you know, like there are people that are keeping the buildings going and keeping the plants watered and keeping everything like that. If we just left, that would, Las Vegas would revert back to the desert, you know, naturally, probably very quickly, you know, if nobody was maintaining it. And that's just because it's the terrain. And we see that in studies. So for example, they'll do a study in mice and they found that when they take germ-free mice, so mice that don't have any microbiome in them, if they put in a different species of bacteria that's not natural to the mice, as long as that species is being pumped into the mice, it'll make changes in the, in the mice's microbiome 
and we'll see the effects of that microbiome in the mice. But the second we stop giving the mice that bacteria, within 14 days, so within two weeks, they immediately go back to their normal gut flora. So it's like our bodies very naturally support a certain type of bacteria unless we force it through other changes. And one of those changes can be a dietary change. So for example, if we start eating you know, a certain diet that supports a certain type of gut bacteria, as long as we're eating that diet and quote, superficially maintaining that population, then we might see that gut bacteria population in our gut. And it is going to be a very fast change because those transient species will change pretty quickly, but it's not going to be most likely a long-term change. And it's very likely and that the second we stop doing that diet or change that factor that we're in a way forcing on ourselves, that we're going to naturally revert back to whatever our body supports as its natural gut microbiome. And then there's a second factor to it. So that's the first factor is the terrain and what population it determines. The second factor is how our body reacts to that population, independent of what that population is. So let me explain what I mean by that. So basically our body naturally supports a certain type of population. And then that population of gut bacteria, our immune system can respond to that type of bacteria. So for a lot of people, if everything's dandy and in line and functioning well, then the immune system is going to be really happy with that gut bacteria. There's not going to be any negative, you know, I mean, not crazy negative effects. It's going to be very beneficial. It's going to support the health of the host. Things are dandy. But for some people, especially with autoimmune conditions or if their immune system gets a little bit wonky from some sort of factor or for some sort of reason, they might actually start reacting to that gut bacteria negatively. So that's a whole nother factor is the terrain determining the population and then how you react to that population. So it's sort of like you are Las Vegas. If Las Vegas was a person, it's like, how does Las Vegas feel about Las Vegas? <laughs> like, how does it feel about the people that are, that are there? So yeah, it's really, really interesting. So that's a reason that, you know, we might see such vast changes very quickly when we, you know, change up the gut bacteria, but the gut bacteria will likely very easily go to what the body is naturally supporting. And I don't want anybody to think that this means that it's hopeless and you can't get better because think about like my friend going back to her, you know, she had a food poisoning that was bad for her. And that didn't change her terrain to something terrible where she couldn't ever recover. She recovered. And so if you have something going on that's negative in your gut, don't feel like, well, there's nothing I can do. I just can't change it. You can. You can recover. So to keep that in mind, yeah, you just have to work at it. And something, I don't know if this was the case with your friend, but a lot of people who do get problems from food poisoning and really struggle to get back to normal they've realized, for example, you know, I was talking about the second part, the immune system, that oftentimes food poisoning can lead to something called viculin antibodies. I think that's the word. Basically, because of that acute negative exposure, the immune system does start making antibodies to the gut itself in reaction to certain foods or gut bacteria. So you start getting this negative reaction every time you're eating. So that's like an example of a a change that happened in 
not to the actual gut bacteria, but to the body's response to digestion and gut bacteria and food that creates a long-term lasting negative effect. But I don't want people to feel hopeless about it because everything is always changeable for the better. I truly, truly believe that. And even if you do adopt, a certain gut bacteria is being maintained by a dietary pattern that you're following. We all choose a dietary pattern. And if somebody finds a dietary pattern that they like, I mean, there's nothing wrong in in following a healthy diet long-term that supports a gut bacteria that really serves you. You know, I mean, for anybody, if they change their eating, it's likely going to change their gut bacteria. So there's always, always potential. But I'll put a link to this study because it was really, really fascinating. And there was a lot of other really crazy tangents in it that aren't even really related to this discussion. But I was taking all these notes and I was like, oh, like it was talking about things like how gut bacteria have their own circadian rhythms that can influence. Oh, yeah. I was like, I was thinking about you, Jen. I was like, there's a lot of stuff in here that <laughs> we could talk about forever. It was talking about even like how gut bacteria can influence apoptosis, which is like programmed cell death. And it, I mean, it's really fascinating. I mean, these little critters are so much more important. And, you know, when I was researching for Feast Without Fear, so anyone who wants to have like a basic background understanding of the gut microbiome, I have a chapter on this in Feast Without Fear, which is my second book. So check that out if you're interested. But we really didn't even know all of this. I guess it's been maybe 12 years, a little bit more than that now. But that's when scientists started to be able to actually sequence what lives in our gut microbiome and realized it wasn't just, you know, where the poop was. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. But prior to that, scientists didn't even know about the diversity of the gut microbiome. They didn't even understand all of this. So this is really new science, and we're learning more and more about the importance of the microbiome to really every facet of our health. And, you know, we've got more little critters living inside of us than you could even imagine. And so fascinating stuff. But yeah, everybody has a unique gut microbiome and it is based on so many different factors. You know, they're even saying, you know, at birth, whether you're were born traditionally or had to be born via C-section, that, you know, from the beginning helps to develop your gut microbiome. Yeah. By the way, a natural birth is better because it, it seeds you with, you know, the type of bacteria that you want to have. And those strains at birth, those are strains that we don't have access to in like a pill form. Ever again. So you can't really supplement your way into an, a, a natural birth gut microbiome because those are strains that are intrinsic to the gut. We're not going to get them in a probiotic form. I wish I had my gut analyzed when I was obese. Like I super duper wish I had, but of course they weren't doing it (laughs) back then. And so when I finally had my gut analyzed with the American Gut Project, it was hmm, 2017 when I had it analyzed and it was fascinating to get the results back, but I was already at my goal weight. And, you know, since our gut microbiome is so responsive to what we eat, I was not surprised at all to find that my gut housed a lot of little little guys that like to eat things like grains and beans and vegetables. And so I had a gut microbiome that, or I have a gut microbiome that digests those types of foods very, very well. And so they're thriving. So what I've got living in my gut is actually linked to a lean overall body type and doing very well with these diverse plant foods. But that was also what I was eating at the time and still eat to this day. So what I eat matches what works well with my gut. 
And, you know, you can ask chicken or the egg, which came first. Do I naturally gravitate towards these foods because my gut always preferred them? Or did I change my gut by starting to eat more of these foods or did it kind of happen together? So those are the kind of questions we're still figuring out. Yeah. And so reading this study, it would sound like... Well, like my terrain supports that type, you know, if we apply it to that. But, you know, when I was eating a bunch of junk and fast food and I was obese, I wonder, you know, had I wiped out the good gut bacteria? And, you know, I just don't know. I wish I knew. The study actually concludes with basically the exact thing you just just said. They say, hence, whether gut microbiota affects behavior whether behavior affects gut microbiome composition, so that's basically what you just said, Jen, or or whether a third unknown factor influences both the gut microbiome and the behavior, so a third factor, remains to be determined. See, we still don't know. know. They they (laughs) literally just said the exact same thing you said. Well, that makes me happy because I have not read that study. I hadn't heard of the idea that we have a different terrain, but it makes sense. But I hadn't heard that specific idea before. But I'm happy that my own musings based on the research I've done fall in line. I've read a ton about it. I mean, you know, you don't write a book about something without doing a lot of research. So (laughs) right after that, they said that overall, the most significant challenge facing the host genetics and microbiome field is the establishment of causality in the observed associations right. between the environment, host genetics, the gut microbiome, and disease. So, right, yeah, you would have fit really well with these researchers, Jen. I love it because we just really don't know. Do I eat those foods? They make me feel great. Do they make me feel great because my gut always wanted them? Or did I develop this? You know, we don't know. So anyway. So, yep. Fascinating. All righty. Shall we jump into the next question? Yes. Let's get started with that one. All right. So now we have a ton of questions (laughs) from Rachel. And just to give an example, the subject is autophagy for three days, lectin, gluten blockers, pickle juice. (laughs) And But there's even more than that. Okay. So Rachel says, hi, ladies. I'm obsessed with the podcast and I'm very excited Jen has come out with the Eye of Stories which serves as another way to keep my mind in the fasting zone. So she's referring to Jen's other podcast, Intermittent Fasting Stories. How are you enjoying that, by the way, Jen? Oh, I love it. I'm really enjoying it because I'm just there as the host. And really, the stars of that podcast are the people that I talk to every week. It's somebody different. And I've talked to all sorts of different people. And so I'm really enjoying hearing their stories. And there's a lot of consistency among their messages, but also... It shows the uniqueness and the individuality of each person. Because even though they have some similar threads running among them, they are finding an intermittent fasting lifestyle that suits them. That's awesome. Yeah, it really is. So for listeners, you could follow that podcast also in the Himalaya app and have instant access to all of the podcasts. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get an exclusive discount on one of my favorite products for truly upgrading your health on a cellular level. So the new year is upon us, and it's often a time where people are really trying to instill new habits and really upgrade their health. There's something I have been using for years, not just at the new year, literally every single day of my life. I am not making that up. Even when I travel, I have a way to address it then, which I will tell you about. 
And it's something that is so easy and feels amazing. That is red light and near infrared therapy. Okay, so friends, you could go somewhere and pay a lot of money to do red light near infrared therapy sessions, or you could just bring it to your home and use it every single day. That's what I do. I've been using Juve red and near infrared light therapy devices for so long. There are so many clinically proven benefits of red light therapy. That includes improving your skin. Yes, you really will notice it. Faster muscle recovery, reduced pain and inflammation, enhanced sleep, and so much more. I use it in the morning and evening as ambient light because it actually mimics the setting and rising sun. And then I sort of run it throughout the day as well to help combat all of the blue light that we're exposed to, which can have a negative effect on our health. Whenever I have muscle pain, I shine Juve on the muscle. For me, it has made the pain go away instantly. And then for chronic pain, when I do continued sessions, it's made it dissipate. One of my good friends who is a doctor uses these devices on his, shall we say, manhood for benefits there. Yes, it can help in that department as well. I honestly could not imagine my life without Juve. You will just feel so good using these devices. People also post all the time in our Facebook group of their pets gravitating towards the Juve because intuitively they just know that it's good for them. The reason Juve can address so many things related to health is because it actually affects our cells on the mitochondrial level. Basically, it makes those cells perform better. And when those cells are performing better, everything just works better. That's why, yes, Juve can help with your energy as well. I've been recommending Juve specifically for years because the quality of their devices are the best. Their modular design allows for a variety of setup options to give you flexibility. The treatments are so easy. You can do them in as little as 10 minutes, or you can be using it all throughout the day like I do. All you have to do is relax and let your body take in the light. They also have their Juve Go, which you can travel with. Yes, that is how I really do use this every single day. That Go is also great for targeting specific areas of your body, like hurting joints or sore muscles. Honestly, friends, health doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be complicated. If you're looking to enhance your health and wellness this new year, start with what matters, which is your cells. And Juve has an amazing offer just for our audience. You can go to juve.com slash ifpodcast and use the coupon code ifpodcast to get a discount on your qualifying order. Again, that's j-o-o-v-v.com forward slash ifpodcast to get an exclusive discount on your order. Pick up Juve today. Some exclusions apply. I really hope you guys can experience Juve. It really is one of my favorite things. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. All right, so Rachel says, I have a few questions I've been collecting over time that I'm hoping you can help with. And this is super random, but I found that when people do send us these long lists of like all the questions, I can tell that they've really listened probably to all of our episodes because we haven't really addressed any of these questions. You know, like when people do this, it's usually pretty unique questions. So I feel like they've been listening to all of our episodes and these are the things that we haven't answered or touched upon. I think so too. Yeah. So Rachel says, number one, before this podcast, I used to listen to the podcast Fasting Talk. Recently, I revisited some old episodes and heard Megan, Dr. Jason Fung's assistant at the Dietary Management Clinic, mentioned that the effects of autophagy don't occur until three days into a fast. Is this true? It sounds like you both feel you can benefit from the effects of autophagy in a one meal a day lifestyle. Just wondering if you can clear up some confusion for me. That's a great question. And here's the thing about that. 
again, just like we were talking about with the gut microbiome, autophagy research is also fairly new. I had never heard the term until the 2016 prize in medicine, the Nobel Prize in medicine based on autophagy. And then everyone was suddenly talking about it because it's linked to fasting. So we like to really, you know, talk about things and try to figure them out when really research is ongoing. But here's the thing about autophagy. We tend to be so like, light switch about things. Lights on, lights off, right? But really, instead, think about some of these things that happen in the body as more of a dimmer switch. You know, you've got all the different levels in between. Autophagy is something that ramps up and then it goes back down. So people who are not fasting do experience cellular autophagy. You don't have to fast for 72 hours to get autophagy. Does it make sense that our bodies would have a fabulous mechanism in place like autophagy where it cleans up things and that you would have to fast for three solid days to get it to happen? You know, at no time in human history did people purposefully try to fast for three days, four days, five days like that. So, you know, yes, people did religious fasts, whatever, but our bodies were made to intermittently have food based on the availability of food. And when in between those times, when you didn't have the food, your body could do some scrounging around. You know, think about it like that. Like if you haven't been to the store and you got to scrounge around in your cupboards to find what's left over and, and use that, that's what's happening, you know, with autophagy. So the reading that I've done, and I also link to this in Feast Without Fear as well, so another plug for that book, I have a chapter on fasting and benefits related to fasting, and I have all the links there. You can also go to feastwithoutfear.com and find the book links there. If you don't want to read Feast Without Fear, there's lots of good book links there. But what really made me go, aha, was reading a paper from a, a scientific journal that's linked in Feast Without Fear about autophagy. And they were studying it in one specific study. I think it was rats. It could be rats or mice. But they noticed that as liver glycogen was depleted and the rat or mouse or whatever it was started to switch over to ketosis, autophagy also ramped up. So think about those two things as kind of being hand in hand. They're not the same process. Ketosis is not autophagy. Autophagy is not ketosis. They're two different things. But as your body is getting to the end of your stored liver glycogen and having to look for another source of energy, which is where you start to make ketones out of your stored fat, your body also is like, all right, cupboard's bare, time to scrounge around. Doesn't it make sense that that is when autophagy would also begin to ramp up? It does to me. So when does that happen? Well, let's imagine that everybody's starting with full glycogen stores. You haven't been fasting ever. You've never fasted it might take you three days <laughs> to fully deplete your glycogen stores and get into that state. But as we've talked about many times on our podcast, with intermittent fasting, we deplete our glycogen over time. So when you first start on day one of intermittent fasting with your full glycogen stores, you're not going to be getting into ketosis. You're not going to have increased autophagy. But every day during the fast, you'll take out some of your stored glycogen. And then when you eat, you'll put some back. The key is you want to fast enough so that you're taking out a little bit more every day than you put in. You know, how long does that take before you've actually been able to accomplish that? Well, it's different for everybody. I know what the signs of ketosis are for me because back when I was trying keto for weight loss in the summer of 2014, I had a ketonics breathalyzer. And so I was able to get positive breath ketones from blowing into that. 
And then when I switched over to intermittent fasting and added back carbs, I was shocked to find, because you know, I thought you only had ketones if you were doing the keto diet. So I thought, well, you know, now I'm eating carbs in my eating window. Why do I still have these same signs and symptoms of ketosis? So I pulled out my breathalyzer and sure enough, I had ketones on my breath, even though I was eating lots of carbs. So that was kind of like an aha moment for me, like, hey, fasting does the same thing for us. But you're not going to get there, you know, on day one. And so I had been doing the keto diet before switching over to intermittent fasting and adding back carbs. So my glycogen was depleted from that. So it was very easy for me to transition. My body had also probably built up fat burning enzymes from that time on keto, even though I didn't lose any weight. I think it primed my body to be in this state. So that just reminded me, you know how I was talking about listening to the Ben Greenfield podcast yesterday? Yes. We'll put a link to that podcast in the Intermittent Fasting Podcast Stuff We Like playlist on the Himalaya app. But that was an interview with Ben Greenfield and he interviewed Thomas DeLauer. And like I said, they went into a lot of common questions about ketosis and they specifically, and I was so excited listening to it because they started talking and I was like, yes, all the things I wonder about. They had a very, very nuanced discussion about becoming fat adapted and glucose stores and glycogen. And the guest, Thomas, he said that we actually, as far as like glycogen goes, that it's much more nuanced and complicated than of a picture than we often paint it. He said, it's not like you have to completely deplete your glycogen Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's really the liver also that, that we're talking about here. And remember how I said like that dimmer switch that I said a minute ago? Mm-hmm. It's that same kind of idea. It's not like it's on or off. It's like going down, going up. He said a lot of people think it's like, oh, it's like an order. Like I deplete glycogen, then I switch the fat burning, you know, then I switch. So it's like, but he's like, no, it's really more like, and for listeners, I would say just listen to the episode because he says it much more better than I'm than I can. But he said it's more like you make these metabolic changes where your body starts favoring fatty acids, starts favoring ketones. And when you reach that state, and that does happen, you know, after a while of depleting your glycogen and getting into that state, but that basically once you get to a certain point where you're very fat adapted and very likely to easily become ketotic, you don't even really need to deplete your glycogen per se to enter ketosis because basically your body just starts naturally gravitating toward that state and it will just kind of keep a residual low level of glycogen around purposely for when you do like, you know, short bursts of intense activity. So yeah, you reach this fat adapted state where you can still have glycogen and be in ketosis. Whenever I talk about it, I have like a save note that I always share. I always say you deplete glycogen sufficiently. And that's the key. It doesn't say you completed a hundred, you're doing you're depleted a hundred percent or whatever. There's a point where you've depleted it sufficiently for your body to do these things, right? When you've never been, you know, fat adapt when you're when you're not fat adapted right. and you're not in ketosis, at the very beginning, a good way to start that process is to completely, you know, deplete your glycogen because you got to force your body to start making those changes. But the awesome thing is once you do reach a really fat adapted state, you can reach this point where, you know, you're having carbs and, but your body just kind of like has a new understanding of them, you know? Right. You're metabolically flexible. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't happen overnight. And you know what? 
it takes some people a really long time, depending on your metabolic state and whether you're super insulin resistant, whether you've been overweight for literally decades. You know, there's so many factors. You know, some people start doing intermittent fasting and two weeks later, they're getting into ketosis. You know, <laughs> their body was, was primed to be more metabolically flexible. Yeah, exactly. And I actually found a really fascinating study to get back to the actual question about autophagy. I found a study called Molecular Adaptations to Exercise, Heat Acclimation, and Thermotolerance, the Regulation of Autophagy During Exercise in Skeletal Muscle. And it was actually looking at how exercise increases autophagy, not even fasting. It doesn't take you three days. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Here's a quote from the study. This is like from the very beginning. A basal level of autophagy is constantly ongoing in cells and tissues, ensuring cellular clearance and energy homostasis. Right. That is why I always say increased autophagy, right? You know, fasting leads to increased autophagy. Yeah. So we always have autophagy going even, I mean, from this study, it sounds like even in the fed state is, I mean, it's saying it's always happening. Like I said, it wasn't even looking at fasting. It was looking at how exercise increased autophagy. And it actually said that some of the beneficial effects from exercise come from the increase in autophagy. So it was really fascinating. And I was like, well, because we do hear that thrown around a lot that you have to go three days, you know, to get into autophagy. But I think what that is referring to is referring to, you know, really, really intense autophagy on like a really, really deep level. Increased autophagy. Mm -hmm. Like this study even said there are three different types of autophagy, but then it got really complicated and I kind of like zoned out a little reading it. I'm assuming it might have something to do with that as well. Maybe the certain types of autophagy. Yeah. So basically, don't stress about autophagy. I, I just think people I agree. people should just do intermittent fasting. Know it's supporting autophagy. I mean, we even know, and Jen and I were talking about this off podcast the other day, that we know certain foods increase autophagy, ironically. Like black coffee. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, yeah. I think it's very misunderstood. Yeah. And so, you know, one of my pet peeves I mean, okay, I guess it's a good thing. So I need to like be, you know, glass half full. There's so many different, you know, memes that people are making or diagrams that people are making now about fasting because fasting is mainstream. So with that, you see all really, some really terrible, (laughs) you know, generalizations. And there's, there's a few that, that we see posted over and over in the Facebook groups that have like a timeline of what happens hour by hour. Like at hour 12, this is what your body's doing. And at hour 24, that's when autophagy starts. And I'm like, no, 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 that is not. <laughs> Please stop sharing that. Please stop sharing that because that is not how it works. We're all on a different timeline. And even I think day to day, my body's on a different timeline. And I know those are generalities, but I wish that people would not take that as gospel because they share it and they're like, well, it says right here on this picture that autophagy starts at 24 hours. And we're like, no, no, please stop sharing that. Anyway, that's my rant. (laughs) People love these reductionist pictures that do a big disservice, I think. But then people keep repeating it, and then it becomes like, you know, quote, common knowledge because people have seen it 500 times, and so they're like, well, it must be true. I've seen it 500 times, and then people make new pictures with that same information, and so it's not really based on, and it may be just something like this comment that she said in a podcast, right? And now everybody's like, well, that's gospel. It takes three days. Yep. And no, no, no. 
So anyway, if you're really interested in digging in a summary kind of report that you'll find in journals where it talks about, like, here's what we know, and here's why we know it, and here's all the stuff we know, but it was in a medical journal. If you look at the Feast Without Fear, feastwithoutfear.com book links, I would really encourage people to read that because I had a lot of aha moments when I read that. Yeah, that Ben Greenfield episode, they also talked a lot about how ketogenic diets and ketosis and carbs affect like thyroid hormones and stuff, which we get we get questions about all the time. So definitely check that out. Just random plug. What was their overall takeaway? He was saying that it's not detrimental to the thyroid. He was saying actually that a specific, in the general person, a specific amount of T3 compared to like T4, the other thyroid hormone. So the active form of the thyroid hormone is specifically reserved for processing glucose. And that when you're not having glucose coming in all the time on a ketogenic diet, you don't need extra T3 to process those carbs. And he said that's a reason that a lot of people on ketogenic diets will actually have low T3 levels, but they'll have normal T4 and normal TSH. And he said that that's just a natural response of that it makes sense because you don't need the T3 to process the carbs. So that, yeah, he was saying it's not a bad thing if your lab results show, if you're doing ketogenic diet and your labs show low T3, normal T4, normal TSH. It's just because your body is needing less T3 to process the carbs, which was very, very fascinating. So that is interesting. So Rachel's next question, she says, Dr. Gundry, the author of The Plant Paradox, has a lectin-blocking supplement called Lectin Shield. I understand you're an advocate of Gluten Guardian as a supplement to take when having gluten. However, since gluten is a lectin, do you know if Gluten Guardian also protects against other lectins, such as peppers, tomatoes, eggplant, etc.? I'm wondering if these two products do the same thing, or does Gluten Guardian strictly protect against only gluten? And I can I can pretty quickly answer this, Rachel. First of all, I would encourage you to any question like this to directly reach out to buy optimizers because they are very, very wonderful with their customer support and directly answering your questions. So I'd really encourage you to email them this exact question. They can probably help you out better than I can, but we do love buy optimizers. And like we said in the beginning of this podcast, they are a supporter of this podcast and we have a discount for 20% off. So definitely check that out. But the compound in Gluten Guardian is called DPP. It is specific for gluten. I assume it probably works with other things as well, but that's kind of what it was formulated for and that's what it's researched for. I also looked into Dr. Gundry's supplement, the one that he has for lectin breakdown, and it has about like seven or so different compounds in it and different herbs and different, just different things. And um, if you go to his website, he actually breaks it down, no pun intended. And he talks about how each of those break down different specific lectins. They're all very specific to certain types of lectins. So I would not substitute one for the other. I would just use them based on what they say they're for. Well, I want to just have a, a brief flip side here about lectins and say that I don't fear lectins one single bit. And I don't agree that it's something that we need to worry about. And so we'll have a link in the show notes to an article that talks about, you know, the flip side of this, you know, are lectins something you need to be concerned with? I say the answer to that is no, unless you know you have problems. Like, you know, if you've got, like with gluten, if you know that you have celiac, you can't have gluten. If you know certain foods bother you, 
don't eat those foods. But for the rest of us, do we need to fear gluten? Or, I'm sorry, do we need to fear lectins? I would say the answer to that is no. You know, read the other side of the coin about lectins and whether you need to worry about them. I agree as well. I don't think everybody should fear lectins. I would also love to have this conversation with you after you've read his book as well. I've told myself, I'm not going to read a book that makes me worry if I should eat beans because I feel fabulous when I eat beans and I don't think they're harming my health because here's a quote, beans are rich in anti-cancer phytochemicals and are foods demonstrating the most powerful association with lower rates. I mean, these are foods that are so strongly linked to health. I'm not going to read a book that tells me that they're not. I'm not saying to read it to convince yourself that they're bad. I'm saying just to see what he's saying. I've actually read, I, I've read a summary of what he says about it. And I, I've, on his website, he talks about it. I've also read summaries of people who are rebutting what he says about them. That's why I'm saying read both sides. That is exactly what I'm saying here. Read the other side of it too. Don't just read his book and then come across or come away with this idea that you should not eat these foods. Because a lot of people are doing that. I have actually read articles about both sides. So don't think that I've got my, you know, my head in the sand and I've refused to look at the evidence. I'm not going to read his book, okay? I've read what his evidence is, and I've also read the other side of it. I don't think I need to read his whole book to see what he's saying. Just respectfully, I think, I think it's important. If you're going to engage in a discussion about a person's work, I think it's very, very important to actually read their work. I've read what he says. I have read, I've read on his website. So I have read what he says. And I've also read rebuttals of people who are scientists who say, no, that's wrong. You know how earlier we were talking about like synthesizing and, you know, people telephone, you know, and I'm not saying it's telephone where somebody said, somebody said, and then we don't get the actual source. But I just think in order to engage in a, a conversation about it, we should like read the actual source material because I agree as well. I don't think everybody should fear lectins. I think a lot I will also say his book is not the source material. His book is an analysis of studies where he is interpreting them and coming up with what he thinks about them. So I think if you really want to dig in, read the, read the studies. I'm just saying for any discussion about him specifically. I'm going to go back to what I was saying because I stand by this very, very firmly. I don't think that people need to read any book written by any person, his book or the opposite book, and just blindly follow it. I want you to educate yourself on both sides of it and understand that foods with lectins are some of the most healthy foods linked to longevity and great health outcomes. So keep that in your mind and don't just think, can't have lectins, lectins are bad. That's my whole point. I agree. And I I think if you're interested in the lectin debate and everything, if you're interested by what both sides say, I would encourage people, you know, read it with an open mind, see what you do take from it. Because I don't think it's quite as narrow-minded as people often think it is when they haven't read it. I just want everybody to like read all the information and reach their own conclusions about everything. Because I I mean, I as well agree that a lot of foods are super healthy that do contain lectins and it is a matter of finding the ones that work for you. And for some people that could be every food with every lectin and that'll be great. Some people might be just one type of food with one type of lectin. And like you said at the beginning, Jen, it could just be that one lectin for that one person. 
And that's also wonderful. And so it's really important to have, you know, a really comprehensive picture and understand everything. I just don't want to demonize his work and say that he, that he says all lectins are bad all the time, because I, I don't think that's the picture that I think that's what we people have reached the conclusion that his book is saying, because that's how it's marketed. And that is often how it comes across. But I think it's more of a nuanced picture. And that's actually what I was, that's all I was saying and saying that here's the flip side of lectins. I didn't say anything like bad about him. I just said that you need to educate yourself about the flip side of lectins and don't just assume that they're quote bad. I just think it's a very interesting read. And I think it has been painted as giving a certain picture of lectins that is slightly more nuanced when you read the actual book. Well, I do want to also say this because this is my mind shift. I spent decades of my life, you know, I'm, I'm a good bit older than you. I spent decades of my life, you know, trying to figure out, quote, perfect foods and what were, quote, good foods and, quote, bad foods. And I have gotten to a stage in my life where I reject the idea that there are, quote, good foods and, quote, bad foods. And so I'm not going to read and buy into any kind of mindset that there are classes of foods that are bad for everybody. That's why I absolutely am not going to read books that try to steer you in in one direction versus another. And so, you know, maybe that some people might say, oh, you really should read these books, but I'm not willing to do that anymore. You know, I'll be 50 years old in July. I'm not going to have my mind full of thoughts that certain foods are quote bad foods or to be avoided or not naturally to be eaten by people. And it's just because of my own struggle for so many years of trying to find the perfect or right foods. And now I don't have to think about that. I eat foods that make me feel great. I feel wonderful and I'm healthy. And so that's why I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole ever, ever again. I reject that personally. So I respect that completely. I just don't want listeners to think that if they read his book, that it's going to be this one thesis. I agree what you said. I think that's wonderful. And I think that's a wonderful mindset to have. I want listeners to feel free as well to read the book if they're interested. And don't go in with assuming it's going to say one thing. Just read it with an open mind. Take what you will. And this is just the way I like to see things. But you know, read everything with an open mind. Take what I find beneficial and what I find applicable to me in my life. Take the good and go on from there. Read both sides of every argument. You know, like keto is good. I've read those arguments. Keto is bad. I've read those arguments. That's just, you know, throwing that out there as an idea. And they've all got nuggets of truth in them. Every argument has nuggets of truth. And so you just have to be able to dig through it and read it. And But don't blindly follow anything is, is what I'm saying. Even what we're telling you. <laughs> don't blindly follow us. Don't blindly follow anything. That's why I, it's like, in a way, don't even listen to this conversation about lectins. Just if, if you want to hear what he says, read it and draw your own conclusion. But then I would read the other side too. No, no, of course. Yes. Read the source material of both sides if possible. Well, I've been on his website. I mean, his website has plenty of stuff on there. It's not like, you know, you can't discover his thoughts by reading his website. You can. I would suggest start start there. Go go read it. Read on his website. And if you want to know more, read his book. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. <laughs> and also to the flip side. <laughs> yeah, no, send me any links and I'll link that as well. I did. I, I have it. I sent it to you. All right. So Rachel's next question. She says, sorry to bother you with yet another, will this break my fast question? 
but will dill pickle juice or gut shots, and then she puts a link to the, the gut shots, and I'll put a link to those in the show notes, break my fast or be considered in the gray zone? Once in a while, when I'm doing a 48-hour fast, I would kill to sip on some pickle juice. All right, Jen, thoughts on pickle juice? I'm going to say don't drink pickle juice because you're wanting to drink it because it feels like, you know, quote, a free food, you know. And we're not, I I know that when we're fasting, especially if you're doing a 48-hour fast, you might miss flavors. But really think about why you're fasting, what you're doing. And I just wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, I would err on the side of with these gray type area foods and juices and things, especially with the the gut shots and anything like probiotic. Oh, definitely not those. Yeah. Well, anything probiotic or anything with all these different compounds. And we were talking earlier about that study about how gut microbiome and just so many things can influence so many things and we don't know what's doing what. I would just say open your fast with these. So then you're you're taking them in the fasted state <laughs> in a way. So you're going to get all the instant benefits from them because they're going to be very quickly assimilated. So opening your eating window with it because then you're getting these nutrients when you're in a very receptive state, you know, because you've been fasting. So your gut is ready to just take up whatever nutrients there are. But that's not why she wants to drink the pickle juice. I know. she. I mean, she just wants to sip on it. But I'm saying if you want it for the the health benefits and everything, I would really suggest just opening your eating window with it because then you're getting best of both worlds. So number four, Rachel says, how would you define binging? Sometimes I end up eating a good amount of food fairly quickly within an hour. Anything that looks good, I eat until I'm full. I don't feel disgusting. I feel fully satisfied, but wouldn't want another bite. Then I close my window. Would this be considered binging? I find reaching a sense of fullness quickly makes me more satisfied as opposed to eating a little and seeing if I'm still hungry. I eat. I'm happy. I'm done. Do you foresee any problems with this approach? I'm just going to say no. No. Yeah, that is not binging. What she said is basically if somebody was like, what is not binging? I think if somebody was like, what would it look like to look like you might be binging, but it's not binging? I think it's this, you know, because she's saying that she's eating a lot. She's eating till she's full. So I think she might fear that she's fulfilling the criteria of binging because of the way it looks. But I do think the binging comes a lot down to the mindset, and this mindset is just so healthy and so wonderful. So kudos to you, Rachel. Super motivating. Yeah. And I also want to say, I wonder if the thought, like the little seed or root of this question is somehow we've developed the idea that we're not supposed to ever feel full. Like that's a bad thing. Like, oh, I feel full. I must be terrible. But, you know, no, I think we're meant to feel. I don't mean like stuffed Thanksgiving. I'm sick. Why did I eat that? That's a bad feeling. If you ever feel like that, you may have binged, right? But if you just feel pleasantly full and satisfied, I think that's how we're meant to be. But yet we we may have feelings of guilt associated with that. Like if we think we have to eat little amounts in order to be good or something. That's such a wonderful thing. I'm glad you brought that up. And I think I think because a lot of people, the 80-20, harahachibu is the phrase, and I'm sure you might pronounce it differently. I don't really know. But harahachibu means eat till you're 80% full. Yeah, and I think that works for a lot of people. And I think because in our society, we so easily do get into a quote binging oversatiated, overfull mindset, we get this idea that, oh, like you said, eating till you're full in a healthy manner must also be bad because we need to be doing 80-20 or we need to never be completely full. But that's not necessarily true. Some people, 
they work very well with eating till they're full and they don't have, you know, feelings of restriction. They don't have feelings of overeating. There's not this emotional component. It's just eating to satisfaction. And I think that's very, very healthy and wonderful and not binging in the sense of, you know, the negative idea of binging at all. Right. I agree. Rachel's next question. She says, when both of you were in the weight loss phase in particular, how many hours long was your eating window per day? And that's easy. I started with a five-hour window, and then I gradually you know, tried different things along the way. At one point, I was having a, a lot shorter window as I was getting towards goal. It was more like a one- to two-hour window. But really, it varied all throughout the time. But for me, for weight loss, not going above a five-hour window seems to be was where, the, where I was able to find the weight loss. How about you, Melanie? Well, for me, we talked about this before. I actually never counted the eating window, and I never have. I've only ever counted when counting the fasting window. So when I was in the weight loss phase would have been when I first started intermittent fasting. Never, ever counted my eating window. Just counted my fasting. So I always made sure to go. I would stop eating. And then I don't remember what my like numbers were, but I think I would go, you know, around 20 hours or so. So it probably ended up being about a four hour eating window. That's just so interesting because mm-hmm. I never thought to do that. We've talked about this yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. It's so funny. So uh, yeah, because I've never, I don't like the idea of having to stop eating. I mean, I think, you know, whereas once I really get into the fast, I love the fasted feeling. So I love, it's like, ooh, once you start racking up the hours, it's like really exciting. And it's like the more hours you add, the better you feel versus like a countdown where it's like, oh, I can only eat. And this is just how I perceive it. And I think you've got to find what works for you. But for me, it's like if I, I'm counting my eating window hours, then I, I feel like there's like a, I have, I have to stop eating, which was something I think I was reverting against or one reason I found intermittent fasting so freeing. So I like to count, I like to add up the fasting hours rather than count See, down. See, I, I needed the, the time to stop thing because otherwise, I mean, I don't need more, but when my satiety signals were so broken, I mean, I would have just kept eating till like, I don't know when. <laughs> I never would have stopped. I had to have that stop. I had to have that time to stop now. I guess what stopped me was I would do it so late that going to sleep would, you know, would stop me, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So I kind of had like a built-in stop without having to count anything. And then when I did count, it was like feeling really good. You know, it was like counting the fast. So yeah. Yep. Right. Rachel's next question. She says, another fasting source mentioned that they think a two-hour eating window per day is really the sweet spot for weight loss on one meal a day. Would you agree or would you say it's highly individual? I think we would both say it's pretty highly individual. I would because that might be too much fasting for some people and their bodies rebel by feeling overstressed. And so what feels great for one person is too much fasting for somebody else. Exactly. I mean, some people, a lot of people do find that a shorter eating window, especially when they have a lot of weight to lose, does help more. But I don't really think there's one sweet spot for everyone. It's like we were talking about earlier with pictures and synthesizing and saying, oh, it's this way for everybody. This is an exact example. Like somebody at yeah, some point it was is. like, two hour eating window is a sweet spot. And now it's like, oh, two hour eating window is a sweet spot. Mm, no, not so much. Right. And really, it might be too long for somebody, but it also might be too short. I know some people, when the window starts to get shorter, they do start to feel the urge to binge. We see this in the Facebook groups. They, you know, if their window is too short, 
they feel like they have to binge, 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 binge to, quote, get it all in. So it's really about finding what feels comfortable to you. And don't try so hard to define it. Like, you know, the whole idea of one meal a day, people think they have to define it a certain way. Don't. Exactly. Then Rachel's last question, she says, do either of you know the names of any healthier, low-sugar wines that I'd be able to pick up at a standard grocery store without committing to a subscription service? Like Jen, I'm a fan of white wine, dry, and bubbly. Yeah, so Rachel, so she's referring, the subscription service, she's referring to Dry Farm Wines, which we absolutely love. So Dry Farm Wines, they find, they go throughout the world, throughout Europe, they find wineries practicing organic practices. And what's really huge about them compared to just like a wine in store that's marked as organic is that they test to make sure the wines are low alcohol, low sugar, organic, free of toxins. So much criteria that honestly, all of those criteria are not going to be fulfilled by most wines, even ones that say that they're quote organic. So if you want all of the criteria, I would really say checking out something like Dry Farm Wines. If you want to get closer to that criteria with a label certification, you would want to look for wines that are certified as biodynamic, which is going to put a lot more emphasis on a lot of the growing practices, a lot of what is going to end up in the wines compared to just normal organic wines. And you can get some of those more affordable. They have biodynamic ones at Whole Foods in the like the organic section. So you can look there. That said, those are not going to measure alcohol content or sugar content. If you want to like get low sugar, low alcohol, all the things, that's going to be really hard to do. That said, there are a lot of affordable, organic, healthier wines that I do like. I mean, I love red, so I... <laughs> I have a lot of red suggestions, but the Bonterra line has a lot of really nice wines and they do have a Chardonnay. They have a Cabernet. They have some others as well. My favorite at the store organic white wine that you can get is Cantoni Pinot Grigio and it is drier. It's delicious. You can get it at Sprouts. Cannot recommend it enough. Also, Rachel, if you join my group Paleo One Meal a Day, intermittent fasting plus whole foods on Facebook. Somebody actually recently posted this, basically this exact question, literally. And a lot of people commented in with suggestions and they, they posted a lot of good suggestions. So I will just refer you to that. So join my group paleo one meal a day, intermittent fasting plus real foods. You don't have to be paleo. You don't even have to do intermittent fasting. It's just for, if you're interested in any of these topics and like search for wine in that group, because somebody did start a really good thread and lots of people put lots of good suggestions. So, yep. Oh, and for listeners, I should say, if you want to try out Dry From Wines, you can get a bottle for a penny if you go to dryfromwines.com slash ifpodcast. All righty. Awesome. Oh, and lastly, they do have, if you just like white wines, for example, you can choose to just receive like white wines. You could always try like a month subscription and see how that lasts you. And the good thing about wine is it lasts. So you could try the subscription, you know, get a box. If you don't like it, you could cancel your subscription, but, you know, have the wine for a while. So, okie dokie. Right. So this has been absolutely wonderful. A lot of good discussions. A few things for listeners before we go. If you go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 98, that's where I'll have show notes for this episode. We talked about a lot of things on this episode. So that's where there's going to be the full show notes. So links to the books, the studies, everything that we talked about. So definitely check that out. If you want to submit your own questions to the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can submit them on our website, ifpodcast.com. 
Like I said, we are a Himalaya-partnered show. If you want to listen to our podcast, guys, get the Himalaya app. Hands down, best thing you could do. And when you're in that Himalaya app, like I said, well, follow us, follow Jen's podcast, Intermittent Fasting Stories, and definitely follow that new playlist I made, Intermittent Fasting Podcast Stuff We Like. I want it to become like this really popular playlist in the Himalaya app. I feel like it will. Oh, so. yeah. That would be amazing. Yay. <laughs> become like the top playlist. But no, it's it's awesome. And I'm going to really, really keep it up to date with everything I'm listening to. And yeah, you can also follow us on Instagram. Like I said, we'll have that Instagram giveaway. So we are IF Podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter. We are the IF Pod. All right. Anything else from you, Jen, before we go? Nope. I think that's it. All right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful and I will talk to you next week. Fabulous. Talk to you then. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, the opinions we discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice. We're not doctors. Check out ifpodcast.com for more information on us. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.